1: wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com tech.
2: Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch.
0: going to tell you a story in an unconventional way. We're skipping straight to the ending. Now that would be a serious transgression in a meeting of my book club or among friends discussing movies, but since you are part of the story, as well as everyone and everything that has been or will be, you may be curious about what's coming. Embrace yourself because the ending is not a happy one, but there's still
3: a long way to go. When you think about the timescales, just the number of years. We've had thirteen point eight billion years, and Almost every way you can imagine the universe ending, there's billions and billions of trillions of years ahead of us.
0: Yes, the end of the universe and of time itself presents no silver lining, but that's because all the silver will be long gone, which is to say all the atoms and particles that make up it and everything else, and yet it's a tribute to our curiosity and our intellect that we can even contemplate what might happen. I'm Seth Shostak.
4: I'm Molly Bentley, and welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute. In this episode, whether by fire or ice, with a whimper or a bang, things will eventually stop happening. Scientists who consider the really big questions, including the end of everything, present scenarios for the last chapter of the universe, and address whether humanity might hasten its own demise, its end of eternity. Oh, my
0: Well, let's start small in our discussion of the end of everything,
4: beginning with the fate of our
0: species.
2: I'm Anders Sandberg. I'm a researcher at the Future of Humanity Institute at the University of Oxford.
4: Okay, Anders, your work at the Institute has you looking at high-impact risks and how they might shape our long-range futures, even if some of the risks are low probability. What keeps you up at night?
2: Well, I'm somewhat concerned about the sun turning into a red giant. Uh, But that is probably not as bad as proton decay.
0: Right. I, I did not see that last one coming. The sun turning into a red giant, okay. That's when our star runs out of fuel, swells up, and bakes the Earth to a cinder. But proton decay?
4: What is proton decay?
0: Well, some physicists think that in the really distant future, protons, which are in the nuclei of every atom, will just fall apart. I mean, imagine all the protons stop being protons all the atoms in the universe would be destroyed. This theory is a consequence of quantum physics.
4: And it's definitely going to happen?
2: Well, no,
0: not definitely. It's still considered somewhat unlikely,
2: but it's possible. Well, the funny thing is, physicists have been predicting that protons should decay, maybe on the order of something like 10 to the 30 years. Uh, But we haven't seen anything in the lab yet. So slowly these estimates have crept up. So now it may be somewhere north of 10 to the 33 years in the future. That is a one with 33 zeros after it.
4: That's a million, billion, billion, billion years into the future. Surely Anders has other things for humanity to worry about before the protons disappear.
2: Well, there is a fair bit of intervening things. But I think proton decay is the real headache because I don't see a good way around it.
0: Okay, well, stopping proton decay seems impossible. But humanity will exit a lot sooner and possibly by its own hand. No help from self-destructing protons required.
4: No matter how long we stretch our time on Earth, humans will not be around to witness the end of the universe itself. But could we be hastening our own end through the unintended consequences of technology? Here are some examples of the shorter, long-term worries that preoccupy Dr. Sandberg and his
2: colleagues. A lot of our research at the Institute centers on the trouble we might be getting ourselves into the next uh, hundred years. That involves, of course, the usual boring things like nuclear war and uh, maybe messing up our climate, but also things like building artificial intelligence that's a little bit too smart, but unfortunately not aligned with our interests. We also have interest in problems with biotechnology, and these threats might mess things up. More long-term, of course, we are probably going to change ourselves as a species. And at this point, many people say, wait a minute, this is, sounds very likely to create all sorts of very weird trouble.
0: Well, you're talking designer babies here. I mean, we now have technology, CRISPR or whatever, so that we could, in fact, re-engineer DNA. There are clear moral questions there. but aside from that, I mean,
2: what's the danger? I mean, maybe we would come out with, you know, better folk. I actually think we have a pretty decent chance of making ourselves more decent. I I think uh, there are many aspects of being human that are not quite great. We could improve on it. Aging, I think we're losing so much uh, when we're getting old. And uh, certainly we could be smarter. Not to mention a bit more social, but here you get into these troublesome things. Maybe it would be great to have people who are much more altruistic, much more willing to give up things for others great but if they also have some other ideology you might find that oh suddenly you have a gang of people who are very good at cooperating but they're out to do something that you find to be very immoral. So I think we are going to run into all sorts of very very complicated problems in the future using technology which on average are probably awesome but that awesomeness also comes with a price that we need to overcome.
0: I said, well, let me return to a specific example, although I I, I hear that you're working on the problem in general, and that is the one of uh, artificial intelligence. Obviously, we don't have generalized artificial intelligence, but that might be coming within, you know, a lifetime or something like that, maybe sooner, I don't know. And the first question, of course, anybody would ask that machine is design a machine better than you are, and then ask that machine, and so forth. So pretty soon you have a machine that's smarter than all humanity, and how do we keep it from, uh, you know, running amok, uh, turning us into pets or, or maybe uh, hamburgers?
2: Yep, that is the problem. So I.J. Good, the statistician and actually collaborator with Alan Turing, who formulated this idea of an intelligence explosion, m- making machines to make better machines and so on. In his paper in the 60s where he presented this idea, he actually ends that paragraph by saying, this is the last innovation we, you must ever need to do, assuming we can control it. And the problem is, of course, in artificial intelligence, we have been struggling to make machines that do something smart. It's not that easy. Uh, So people have been focusing on that rather than safety. Certainly people have been trying to make industrial robots that don't squish people. But coming up with machines that can interpret your commands and don't do anything really stupid with them is really hard. Because we would all love to have a do-what-I-mean command for our computers, except that it has no clue what we actually mean it would probably need to be much smarter than us to actually understand what we want. And then it might actually understand that we're wrong about what we want, too. Okay, so what you're saying is we, we have to be careful how we design
0: these things and, and make sure that they're clever enough to understand what we really mean and maybe even clever enough to correct us if they think we're wrong. But, I mean, if the machines are designing their own descendants, as it were, I mean, at, at some point, their priorities are going to be their priorities, not our priorities. And, and you can always say, oh, well, we'll just pull the plug at that time. We'll, we'll hit this switch and turn them off. But of course, they can foresee that coming and they can take steps against that. So that at some point, the machines are working for the machines. And uh, I mean, what happens to us? Does
2: Homo sapiens just become something that you only see stuffed and mounted in a museum? Well, that's a risk if we don't put in the right values. The interesting thing is, if you have a machine that is trying to build a better machine, it needs to have an understanding of better. And that is a kind of value judgment. That's based on whatever values or counterpart to values it has. So if it's actually a pretty friendly, human-oriented machine, it's going to regard a better machine as something that is also friendly and human-oriented. If it doesn't care about that, if it only cares about maximizing shareholder value or paperclips or what have you, then it's going to make machines that are ever further away from human values. But if you can get the right kind of value alignment, the idea is, then you might actually have super advanced machines that at least some part of them care about humans too. Kind of wonder is, are we being too
0: anthropocentric here? That we're you know trying to craft these machines that will have our best interests at heart, and maybe they do, but at some point maybe they. Don't. Not because they've turned bad, not because they've gone bad, but because they've gone indifferent. Mm -hmm. I mean, there was a story by Stanislav Len many years ago in which the the defense departments, uh, you know, build these big machines to help them with matters of defense. And, but ultimately, by the time they get to the third generation, the machines are just doing their own thing. They're sitting in the corner. They're just humming away. And the only interaction they have with you is if you try and cut the power. So clearly, they're going to develop their own interests. It's like, I don't know, the trilobites sitting around thinking, well, what happens when humans uh, are produced on this planet? You know, how are we going to make sure that they're still friendly to us? It's irrelevant.
2: So how do we deal with this sort of long-term future just a few centuries hence? Yep, that's going to be a really tricky problem. So one solution some people suggest is, oh, we should just enhance ourselves so we're always smarter than the machines. That's going to be very tricky because we're squishy biological organisms and our brains are running rather slow compared to even current computers. Others say, oh, let's just connect our brains to the computers. If you can't beat them, join them. So let's upgrade ourselves by connecting to AI. The problem is of course, now you're going to be the slower part of a bigger system. It seems very tricky and also it's a bit unclear what it actually means to be on the winning side here. Some philosophers argue that our minds are already extended into technology. Part of my mind resides in my smartphone. So if the AIs take over the world and turn it all into paperclips, did that mean I was on the winning side because I had a smartphone? That seems silly. I need to be meaningfully active in the world and that's going to be tricky. I do think we should be trying to upgrade ourselves and I really look forward to being a, a cyborg citizen eventually. But in the end, I think it's more about trying to get the right values over or even having AI that we can say, oh, there are kids. Yep, I don't really understand or approve of what the grandkids are doing out there in the space and with those weird robots. But generally, we seem to have some family values. So it might be that that's the best we can hope for.
0: Yeah, that we could sort of uh, uh, change
2: ourselves enough to appreciate this uh, brave new world. Yeah, Uh, and we at the same time want the brave new world to be a bit of a continuation of our own world. There are some parts that we approve of that we think are truly valuable, and we want that to be carried into the future. And it might very well be that the best way of carrying it into the far future is that After all, the sun is going to burn out in a few billion years. Uh, And biological life of our kind is probably going to have trouble in a trillion years because most of the stars have burned out. At that point, I really want to have some uh, AI, robotic uh, grandchildren who are just happy to live uh, on and uh, will uh, have to worry about proton decay. (laughs) Yeah, they will. So they're always going
0: to confront a problem. Uh, I I, I think you have like a, a Google years, that is 10 to the hundredth years, before uh, the last thing that's ever going to happen in the universe happens. That last big black hole kind of evaporates, self-destructs. And uh, after that, the universe is just sitting there as a cold soup of particles. Uh, I can't imagine that's the good life, even if the descendants
2: have any interest in the good life. Well, I think what we should aim for is maximizing the amount of good life that is going to exist over the future. Because it can be tremendously grand, even if we just live as uh, simple hunter-gatherers for the next 800,000 years. No industrial civilization that still involves perhaps a good life because people will fall in love, sing songs and do things. And that's still 800 billion people uh, in the future. And that's a very modest future. If we actually survive well, I think we can sustain live for this planet for about a billion years. Then we need to help the biosphere along because the sun is getting too bright. And of course, if we go off and settle the asteroid belt, now we have space for a trillion people again for billions of years. And that's just the solar system. And this is still just the potential for normal good life among biological humans. If we think about um, AI, it can exist probably much more densely in in servers, uh, orbiting stars. You can probably have way more life, way more thought. And that can also go on after the stars burn out. We can probably survive at least up to proton decay. There might be clever ways around that, that actually not only uh, gets to the black hole era, but might even go slightly beyond it, although it's very speculative. So I think the potential for a good life in the far future is tremendously big. Which means that we actually have a lot of responsibility right now, because we're here at the start of history. We can kind of mess up the entire future if we do something very stupid. But on the if we open up this future, there's so much value out there. Anders Sandberg, thanks so very much for speaking with us today. Thank you. This was awesome.
4: Anders Sandberg is a researcher at the Future of Humanity Institute at the University of Oxford. Well, Seth, we're talking about the future of the universe in the show, but it sounds as though the future of humanity is a subset discussion within that discussion. Well,
0: of course it is. And it's the part that we're most interested in. But, you know, we can talk about things that will happen in the next hundred years, climate change, right, uh, nuclear war. These are all immediate concerns. But the biggest long-term concern, as far as I can tell, is artificial intelligence. And he spent a lot of time talking about that.
4: And he sounds pretty optimistic that we can get artificial intelligence right. In other words, we can engineer into the machines the correct (laughs) or the desirable values.
0: Yes, he does. Uh, The only difficulty, of course, is maybe that machine's great-great-great-great-great-grandchild machines have forgotten that lesson.
4: Even if human colonies on asteroids do survive for a billion years, as Dr. Sandberg said they might, that time scale still falls way short of the final moments of the universe.
3: Almost every way you can imagine the universe ending, there's billions and billions of trillions of years ahead of us. Next, what a way
0: to go. It's End of Eternity on Big Picture Science.
1: Listen in the morning while you're getting ready, or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
0: As far as where we are in the lifespan of the universe, at about 13 billion years in, We are nowhere near its end we're not even at the beginning of the end or the beginning of the beginning of the end so your weekend plans are safe and you can still save for retirement you have time but how much
3: well it really depends on how it goes so in the book i cover sort of five different possibilities for how the universe might end and on the close side, you know, some of those you can be maybe looking at, you know, tens of billions of years, although those are the like, least likely kind of scenarios. On the longer side, so many trillions and trillions and trillions and trillions of years that there isn't even reasonable language to talk about it. My name is Katie Mack. I'm an assistant professor of physics at North Carolina State University and the author of The End of Everything Astrophysically Speaking. In fact, the
4: universe, astrophysically speaking, has not even reached middle age. It's in the adolescence of its expansion, and although accelerating toward essential non-existence, it is still so far off, we can't get our minds around the timescales involved.
0: And yet, scientists can describe them. By beginning with the physics that was set in motion by the Big Bang, cosmologists can model where they might lead. Dr. Mack shares a few of these ultimate cosmic scenarios with us, although she begins closer in time and space.
4: All right, well, Katie, let's do as you do in the book, and let's just get the end of the Earth out of the way. (laughs) We can summarize this. What is going to happen to the Earth? What's its fate?
3: Well, the Earth is going to fall victim to the sun. So the sun is slowly brightening and it will begin expanding after a few billion years. Within about a billion years, the sun will be bright enough that the temperature on Earth will be too hot for liquid water and the oceans will boil away and this, the Earth will just be a totally lifeless sort of charred lump of magma. So we've got maybe half a billion years or a billion years before that. Will will, um, yeah. will, will the Earth itself exist as a, as an object? yeah I mean, until so until it falls into the sun, if if it ever does because it's a little unclear, maybe maybe when all this is happening, it'll sort of get perturbed out of its orbit and float away. But as it's baked by the sun, it will still be the Earth. It'll be a much hotter earth. But whether or not it will be entirely destroyed uh, in that process is sort of a matter of debate, I would say. Let's move on to talk about everything else. And before okay. we look closely at the ways
4: that the uh, universe might end, I wonder if you could give us a range of time that's left
3: so we get a sense of sure. um, proportionality here. Uh, how much time does the universe have left? In 100 billion years or so, the the fact that the universe is expanding and will continue expanding will make the universe very dark and empty from our perspective so by 100 billion years we won't see other galaxies in the sky and all that's left in our galaxy will be starting to fade away and so that's really where i think you could say that the rest of the universe around us will be effectively ending and then it's just our little our little pocket of matter you know our, our galaxy and the, the close nearby galaxies Those will still be around. A few of the stars will still be alive, but everything beyond that will be dark and and so far away that we won't be able to see it. So that hundred billion year mark is, I think, an important one.
4: Now, Katie, the description that you just gave of this this desolate darkness, um, does that apply to every scenario that you outline? Or is that only? I, I know it applies to one of them, and we're coming up to yeah. it, but
3: but not necessarily. Not necessarily. So it applies to I would say maybe three or four out of the five. Okay. <laughs> so, that's, that's... so in most in most situations, like based on what we currently understand of the universe, we're pretty sure that it'll keep expanding. There are there are some possibilities where something could go a little differently than we expect. And the expansion of the universe could reverse and then we wouldn't get this darkness and things would look a little different
4: well let's look at some of these scenarios and i'd like to start with the scenario by which the universe ends suddenly in case uh, everyone thinks they do have this great expanse of time you might not (laughs) Um, describe for us katie vacuum decay
3: yeah vacuum decay is is my favorite possibility for the end of the universe because it's the most dramatic. It's the most out of left field. So the idea behind vacuum decay is there's there's a sort of set of rules of physics, a set of laws that govern how the universe works. And as physicists, we, we use the shorthand to say that's our vacuum state. Okay, so vacuum as in the vacuum of space, but but we use the term sort of roughly to talk about how physics works in our universe, um, how the laws of physics all fit together. And we have some reason to believe that maybe our vacuumed state is not entirely stable, which means that there's a possibility that the laws of physics could suddenly change. And they would change in such a way that would make it impossible for molecules to exist, for atoms to exist, because those are all governed by the, the laws of physics that we have now, the way that that electromagnetism works to hold molecules together, the way that the nuclear forces work to hold atoms together. Um, those rules, those laws of physics could change suddenly. And the way that would work is there's this this energy field that pervades all of space that we call the Higgs field. And that Higgs field determines our vacuum state, it determines the laws of physics in our universe. And it's possible that that Higgs field could undergo a transition where- So it that would... it's unstable. It's unstable. Yeah, yeah. And it could, it could transition to a different vacuum state, meaning a different set of laws of physics. It could, it could totally break how physics works. And if that happened, it would destroy everything in the universe but doesn't that mean that the universe is flawed there's like a flaw in the fabric (laughs) i mean you can you can think of it that way sometimes i describe it as a manufacturer's defect in the the universe you know um it's it's a built-in instability if if that is what's what's happening and and it's an interesting possibility i I find it very intriguing um, because it, it would be very sudden the way it would happen is that there would be a sudden sort of quantum transition somewhere in space in the Higgs field and it would create this bubble of a different kind of space something we call a true vacuum so a, a, a totally different vacuum state where the laws of physics are different and that bubble would expand out through the universe at about the speed of light and just destroy everything but you would never see uh, a bubble coming because by the time you see it it's 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 on top of you
4: and like you said if this happened um, we would vanish in an instant and the so it's no. not like those science fiction movies where you see the asteroid coming or you see the object getting nope. closer and closer. So it would just be instant. So have you made the T-shirt yet that says you'll never see the bubble coming? <laughs> I definitely... have not made the T-shirt, yet. Okay, no. well, okay. You can have that idea if you want. Um, yeah. And you said that it yeah. intrigues you. But you didn't just say that it intrigues you. You said it's your favorite. <laughs> Why? Yeah,
3: it is. it is my favorite. Well, I mean... Because it's it's so it feels so random. I mean, from a quantum mechanics perspective, it is literally random, but it feels random. But also, you know, it would be very quick. It wouldn't you wouldn't notice it. You don't feel it when it happens. Everything's just over and done in a in a blink of an eye, and there's nothing left. There's no tragic aftermath. You don't have to watch things fade away. It's just done. I think that's a neat idea, you know. What is that what does that even mean? And just the universe just ends.
4: Can you help us, Katie, to get our head around the idea for any of the scenarios that we're discussing, what a post-universe looks like? I mean, you say that the universe is gone. What is a non-universe,
3: and isn't emptiness something? That's a good question. You know, It depends sort of on how you define universe. So when I talk about the end of the universe, um, for the purpose of the book, I'm talking about a process that destroys everything within the cosmos. Right. So, or at least within our part of the cosmos, the observable universe, the part of the universe that we can see the universe is much larger than the observable universe. We know that there is something beyond the point we can actually see in the cosmos because we're just limited by how far light can travel uh, over the course of the time the universe has been in existence, but we know it extends farther than that. Um, So there is more universe beyond our observable universe when everything in our observable universe is destroyed, there could be regions very far away where something else is happening. And there could be a multiverse, so other regions of some larger space where you have effectively separate universes, things that are basically just so far away it may as well be a separate universe because it's beyond the observable universe. There will never be an interaction. And when our cosmos ends... There will be another cosmos, infinite number of other cosmic regions that carry on. Uh, it's also possible that there could be some kind of cycle that that our cosmos ends and then that leads into the beginning of a new cosmos uh, that that comes out of out of the destruction of ours. Let's look at
4: another scenario that I think is perhaps the most likely scenario, and you can correct me mm-hmm. if if I'm wrong, and that's um, heat death. And it's a paradoxical name, heat death, because Mm -hmm. it's actually this scenario where the universe gets cold and dark as it expands. Can you give us an overview of heat death?
3: Yeah, so the heat death is probably, as you say, the most likely in the sense that it's the one that astronomers and physicists think is generally the way that things are going. What happens in the heat death is, you know, the universe is expanding, it continues expanding, it's expanding faster and faster. And so everything is just moving away. I mentioned before that in about 100 billion years, we won't be able to see other galaxies, they'll be too far away from us. And so as we evolve toward a heat death, what happens is eventually all stars will die, um, even black holes will evaporate, sort of leave you know a bit of radiation around, particles will decay, and you'll end up with a universe that's effectively cold, dark, and empty, aside from a tiny bit of radiation sort of floating around. And and that radiation that's left is just the radiation from the decay of everything else. And it's effectively the waste heat from all of the processes of the universe. And so the reason the heat death is called the heat death is because at the end, all that's left is the waste heat of the universe. You know,
4: this ending... To the universe, mm. seems gentle. So you said that you liked the yeah. idea of vacuum decay because it's sort of weird and it's sudden and we wouldn't feel it. But but this would yeah. be a nice way to go too. Perhaps it would be kind of quiet
3: yeah. and gentle. It's it's very it's very slow. It's very gentle in that sense. Um, some people find it a bit depressing because it's you know you sort of end in this sort of cold, lonely, isolated space, <laughs> but. It's, you know, it takes a long time, you see it coming, um, you just kind of fade away and and uh, everything's over. So there's a certain amount of stuff in the universe, it's evolving in a certain way, and it's evolving toward an ending, one way or another. So it might just be this, this heat death that takes a really long time, where all that happens is everything gets farther apart, and that leads to this fading and this decay... Or it might be something more dramatic, like like vacuum decay, or or like a big crunch where everything sort of slams together again, or a big rip where everything is torn apart in in a more dramatic fashion. But one way or another, we aren't in a steady state universe. There was a time in the in the past, you know, sort of the 1920s when when astronomers thought maybe uh, maybe everything just kind of stays the same. And new stars are born all the time out of nothing, and, and nothing ever sort of dies in the cosmos. And we just we know that's not true. Um, we see that the universe is already dying.
4: Well, well, finally, Katie, a lot of us avoid ruminating about mortality um i mean mm-hmm. we try to because otherwise it would be very hard to get out of bed in the morning um yeah. is there a psychological cost to having a, a job where you think about how things will end that is one of the main things that you do
3: yeah you know it's actually it's been one of the one of the interesting aspects of working on this book i spent about 2 years thinking a lot about the ultimate destruction of all reality you know and that's that's heavy right um i am somebody who does not like to think about death i am somebody who is not at all comfortable with the idea of mortality and it's a different kind of mortality in one sense it's it's very distant and you can you can put it off and say like this has nothing to do with me uh, this is so many trillions or unthinkably long in the future um, this has no personal effect on me so you can you can separate yourself from it like that but but if the entire cosmos is ending and that's that's real and permanent and definitely over and then you have to ask yourself well what does it mean to live in a universe where the fact of my existence will be erased completely and when i was talking to my colleagues about the scientific aspects of this to, to fill in some details of the book i i made sure to ask all of them you know how does the end of the universe make you feel and it was such an interesting experience because this is such such a wide range you know some people said they found it really disturbing and it is it, they're not comfortable with it at all and some said that it's just that's just how it should be i feel very comfortable about it i'm, I'm happy that we're transient there was such a wide range it's a really fascinating topic well,
4: Katie Mack, thank you so much for talking to us and helping us get a perspective on the, on the big picture. There is no, there is no bigger, really. <laughs> thank you for joining yeah. us.
3: Thank you so much for having me. It's a lot of fun to talk about this stuff.
4: Katie Mack is an assistant professor
0: of physics at North Carolina State University and the author of The End of Everything, Astrophysically Speaking. Well, when we're out of universe, we're out of time. Literally, time ends. Next, how that happens. And the possible weirdness along the way, such as the spontaneous formation of brains in the cosmic void.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a real idea. Can you handle it? Anything that is allowed by the laws of physics, however unlikely, if you wait long enough, then there's effectively 100% probability that it will take place.
4: We are contemplating the end of eternity on Big Picture Science.
0: Okay, we understand that the end of the universe as we know it is not an inherently cheerful subject. But discussing it prompts us to marvel at our ability to reckon the large-scale happenings that will take place trillions of trillions of trillions of years from now. The universe kind of spurs us to reflect on the meaning of having an ultimate expiration date.
4: After all, we all struggle against time's arrow. Whether we're up against a work deadline, watching children grow up, too fast, or facing our own mortality. That our time on Earth is limited gives our goals and dreams urgency. The cosmic time scale is much, much longer, true, but it also prompts philosophical thought. I mean, what does it mean that everything that has ever existed will go away? It's here that physics and philosophy intertwine.
1: I'm Brian Green, professor of physics and mathematics at Columbia and author of Until the End of Time.
4: His subtitle, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe.
0: And here comes the caveat. Okay, we've been talking about the end of the universe, but as Dr. Green points out, it's also possible that things don't truly end. I mean, hang on, this isn't exactly a reprieve, but the alternative scenario that physicists propose, in which the universe just expands into a nothingness void for eternity, where everything we know, including time itself, is gone, Well, that's perhaps indistinguishable from an ending. So to talk about the end of the universe just may be a question of semantics.
4: And if the universe does continue to exist without end, well, some sort of activity will take place. You can decide for yourself whether this constitutes a continuation of things. Even Dr. Green struggles with describing a post-universe, post-time reality.
1: Yeah, you think that for someone who has a book called Until the End of Time, I'd have a snappy answer for what we actually mean by the end of time. But it's a, subtle, it's a subtle idea, one that I do explore in the book. One definition is a point in time when all the things that we're familiar with, galaxies, stars, planets, even black holes, will have disintegrated. And that will happen probably around 10 to the 100 years from now. So yes, it's an enormous length of time, enormous duration. But that isn't a moment when time itself will stop. Time itself will continue to tick forward. And as you look, at even longer time scales strange things can begin to happen and root to what you might call eternity structures can spontaneously form in the void even brains it turns out can spontaneously form in the void so there isn't an end in the sense of time stopping it's more an end to the things that we are familiar with
0: uh, well brian you can't say that brains will form in the void when you say that, what, what do you mean? Just a random, you know, coming together of molecules will every now and then form a brain?
1: Precisely. You know, because of quantum mechanics and its probabilistic description of reality, anything that has a non-zero probability of happening, anything that is allowed by the laws of physics, however unlikely, if you wait long enough, then there's effectively 100% probability that it will take place. And between now and the timescales that we're talking about, that duration is long enough to effectively ensure that particles wafting through the void can coalesce into this or that structure, including, at least in principle, human brain. Now, look, scientists are working hard at cosmological theory to ensure that that kind of process is not dominant leading us to the absurd conclusion that our own brains have to be floating in the void simply by the law of large numbers if more of them form in this random manner than in the biological manner. But I'd say we haven't yet got to the point where we can rule out this possibility And so, yeah, brains forming in the void is an idea that we physicists still kick around with a certain degree of seriousness.
0: So uh, might I go back to, I mean, might I appear again in my 10th grade persona? I mean, could I I enjoy it all again in an
1: alternative body? Absolutely, in fact, your 10-year-old self and the brain inside your 10-year-old self was just a collection of particles in a particular configuration, and if, a collection of particles in the far future should replicate that configuration of particles, and that brain will think it is your 10-year-old self. That brain will have the memories and experiences of your 10-year-old self.
0: Let me see if I understand this. It isn't because the universe is necessarily infinite in extent. It's that it's it's open-ended in time. There's no end to it.
1: Yeah, that's correct. Now, there are theories that suggest that may not be the case. So... Our universe is currently expanding. It's actually speeding up in its expansion, leading people to suspect it will continue to do that forever. But there are well-defined theories where the universe reaches a maximum size and then starts to contract in on itself and then implodes down in a reverse big bang that we poetically call the big crunch. And if that is the end of time in a more final, definitive sense, then you won't have the endless durations allowing quantum weirdness to play itself out on this landscape that goes off into arbitrarily far into the future. And that might be one way to obviate this weird possibility of these structures forming in the far future.
0: Well, against this supposedly yawning, endless future, we have our own lives, which lamentably are finite. The cosmos continues, but we don't. So we try to compensate to produce some sort of lasting change. Maybe you could give me an example of this uh, uniquely human trait.
1: Well, I think there are a number of ways that knowledge, awareness of our own mortal nature, our own finite lifespans, deeply impacts our lives. I mean, there's some people who say, no, I'm not afraid of death. It doesn't really affect me. I know it's going to happen, but I just go about living my life. But there's a whole well-developed branch of philosophical thought, psychological thought that chalks all that up to the defense mechanisms that we humans as a species have developed over the course of thousands of years of evolutionary history to cope with the singular understanding of our own mortality. And some of the ways that we cope with it, as you're making reference to, we try to extend the duration of our lives in numerous ways. Some of us believe in various religious faiths that promise that death is not the end others become part of something larger than themselves they they join a team a group a nation a movement to try to be part of something that will outlast their finite time on earth others still have creative expression in the form of of books or or symphonies or artistic works that extend their duration in that kind of symbolic sense and and people like you and i what do we do we try to understand things that transcend our finite lives we try to understand the laws of the universe we try to understand whether there might be other life out there we try to understand planetary systems and galactic systems so in many ways we as human beings seek out something that is more permanent than the ephemeral nature of our own biological lives.
0: Well, okay, we've been discussing that this seems to be a uniquely human trait. I don't notice the squirrels in my backyard paying much attention to their legacy, Uh, more, (laughs) more so to the acorns, which they're trying to find again. But, you know, there are probably plenty of aliens who would disagree with the premise that humans are unique in this. And when we talk about intelligence, of course, we're talking about, you know, biological intelligence. Are we not within a century kind of destined to be displaced from our top seat on the IQ roster by
1: machines? It could well be, and that will be an interesting moment when a certain kind of evolution will have taken place where rather than random mutations leading to some form of intelligence that outpaces our current capabilities, if we actually seed that transformation by developing artificial systems that are really good, really smart, really capable of finding the patterns in the world and explaining them and understanding them and then leveraging them to manipulate the environment in potent and powerful ways. And it could well be that if artificial intelligence does supersede human intelligence it could well be that artificial intelligence will struggle with similar kinds of issues similar kinds of questions of meaning and value and purpose the kinds of questions that we have struggled with as biological systems maybe those sorts of concerns go hand in hand with a certain level of intelligent analysis of reality
0: if you have machine intelligence, and after all, unlike, you know, having soft, squishy brains, machine intelligence can improve itself, I mean, in ways that we cannot. And they might, in fact, have an indefinite lifetime, I mean, if they're willing to keep repairing themselves or arrange for somebody to repair them. So if they were writing your book, maybe they would uh, have an entirely different premise.
1: I don't think so, because... The word indefinite in that description, if we take it literally, I would say that we can say with some degree of confidence that it won't be indefinite, it'll be very long, very long compared to human lifespans. But when we talk about the laws of physics, for instance, the possibility that protons themselves will decay. We don't know that they do, but there's strong indication from our theoretical ideas that they will in something like 10 to the 38 years. And so regardless of what that artificial system is made of, it's gonna be made of protons. And if those protons disintegrate, then it will not last indefinitely. And even if the proton doesn't decay, one of the other ideas that goes back to Freeman Dyson, incredibly creative thinker, physicist, in about 10 to the 50 years, the universe will likely be in a configuration that it won't be able to absorb the entropic waste generated by the computational process of thought itself. Thought's a physical process, it generates heat, that heat has to be dissipated to the environment. If the environment can't soak up that heat, then one more thought in any thinking system will burn up the entropic waste generated by the process of thought itself. And so, yeah, I mean, those artificial systems will last much longer than we, but it'll be finite. And on the scales of eternity, whether it's, you know, 10 to the 10 years, Ten to the thirty years or ten to the fifty years at all is zero, on cosmological scales. So, in some sense, the artificial system will face exactly the same conundrum that we do.
0: Maybe it would be in a better position to solve the problem by, uh, you know, stopping the expansion of the universe or something. Who knows? Conceivably, <laughs> conceivably. <laughs> well, Brian, there's a tendency, if I can call it that, to believe that anyone versed in cosmology or even astronomy has insights into the meaning of life. But does dealing with big things and epic time scales make one somehow better qualified to talk about meaning for a particular hunk of protoplasm we call humans?
1: Not necessarily. And if you were to do a survey, and I don't want to speak for the field as a whole, but I think if you look at sort of the average level of introspection among physicists, astronomers, our colleagues, it's not as high as it is in some other fields Is my general observation of, of our colleagues. So, so no, I wouldn't say that necessarily we're any better off, maybe we're worse off, but the point that I make in the book is that if you think deeply about the journey from here to arbitrarily far into the future and if you take in fully the insights of physics that life and structure consciousness will likely all go away in the future if you take that in fully it does force you on a trajectory whose endpoint is actually quite familiar it's an endpoint that mindfulness teachers and philosophers and sages of the ages have been preaching for time immemorial which is it's the here and now that matters and trying to leave a legacy, trying to find value and meaning by looking out to the universe and absorbing something from out there is likely a fool's errand because these ideas of meaning and value and purpose, they come from us. We manufacture these ideas. And so the cosmological journey doesn't take you to a different answer, but it does get there through a different trajectory, which for me, made it all the more compelling and that's really the point that i'm making
0: so if i can jump to the bottom line here brian then it sounds like well i mean Blaise pascal said you know these infinite spaces he was confronted with the developments in astronomy these infinite spaces terrify me so it sounds like there's nothing really for it other than to return to the minutiae of daily existence
1: well It can be terrifying and I think at some level it is terrifying to be this puny little creature in this enormous expanse of darkness facing this enormous duration, roughly speaking eternity, in which there won't be any living systems at all. So I feel that terror too. But the point is even though you and I and everybody else are just bags of particles governed by laws of physics that don't care about value and meaning and purpose even though that's all that we are it is utterly wondrous that we can come up with concepts of value and meaning and purpose and it's utterly astounding that we can create beauty and we can experience mystery and we can illuminate dark corners of reality and it is all those capacities astounding capacities that should fill us all with a sense of gratitude gratitude and a sense of reverence for being here at all. And when you see our human lives within this grand cosmological expanse, within a universe that is indifferent to our existence, to my mind, it gives you this sense of thankfulness for existence at all, however fleeting that experience may be.
0: Brian Green thanks so very much for speaking with us.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.
4: Brian Green is a professor of physics and mathematics at Columbia University. And he is the author of Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. Well, Seth, what is the big picture here? It's the big picture in space and time. And speaking of time, there were a lot of eras that went by. Can you summarize?
0: Yeah, I can. You can just mark your calendars. Over the next century, the things to worry about are things like climate change, artificial intelligence, and maybe even nuclear war. After that, things get bad only over long time scales. In about five billion years, the sun will begin to expand into a red giant swallowing Mercury Venus and maybe the Earth. In 10,000 billion years, or 10 trillion years, if you prefer that nomenclature, all the stars will have gone out. The universe will be cold and dark. Then the last big black hole evaporates. That's a Google years AD. That's a one followed by 100 zeros. After that, there are still all these cold, dark particles. And because of quantum effects, they could, in fact, build new stuff. Who knows? There may be things happening forever. (laughs)
4: it's so hard to get your head around that. And I guess it's up to us to determine whether that is the end of eternity or if indeed there is eternity. We couldn't do the show without the ever-expanding minds of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producer Sarah Derwin, who worked very well even under the big crunch of a deadline. I'm executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley.
0: Thanks also to financial support from Rena Sholsky, David, and Sammy David, and to the William K. Bose Jr. Foundation and NASA. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that, among other things, investigates cosmology. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. A big thanks to our listeners and to those who have joined Big Picture Science on Patreon.
4: Original music was composed by Dewey DeLay. If you'd like to know more about the guests you've heard, well, you'll find links to them on our website, bigpicturescience.org, along with past episodes of our program. This episode of Big Picture Science is called End of Eternity.